Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by George Cedarquist and Tobias Wright. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with bass Andrean Sempetrian, interviewed by Opera Box Score's own Oliver Camacho. They'll talk about what it takes to be a Romanian singer performing on stages all over the world and what happens when you try to sing outside your comfort zone. But first, in Chalk Talk, we weigh in on an age-old argument in the opera world. To translate or not to translate, that's the question we're asking in light of a series of recent articles on Bachtrak and the Guardian newspaper arguing about English national opera's practice of translating their productions into English. I'm sure we'll solve the problem once and for all with our hot takes. Plus, in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And without further ado... How does it feel to be in the corner now, George? The corner of the studio sucks, man. <laughs> I sat this there is dreadful. I, I sat think there is, many nights. This is, I think, the first time. <laughs> I can feel it on the seat. This is the first time where I've been hosting. I've been up here at the board, and you're just like looking, breathing down my neck. <laughs> I can feel your worry from here. It'll be fine, George. I do this all the time when you're not here. Not um, at all. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And how are you doing, Toby? Are you feeling the, the pressure? I actually, I really love being on this spot. Mm, oh yeah, you've moved up. You're in. Uh, you're in the uh, the spot. I'm. I'm in like I'm the co-pilot chair. I feel like today, George, you're in the jump seat. You're like ready to save us all. You're the flight engineer in case anything hits the fan. Dude, I'm the stewardess with the drinks trolley. You know what? I didn't even watch. You didn't watch no. the Super Bowl before at you even asked. No, I didn't no. even watch. No, nope. George. George. It's, it's an American tr- tradition, though I know with your English Look, Irish. I love I love pro football, but to me the game is so diluted with those ads and the halftime show. I'm not even gonna bother. The yeah. the Super Bowl is more of a spectacle, though it is the crowning of a champion. Well, and you, I can't wait till next year. The MVP <laughs> of the NFL, Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs, guides them to glory. <laughs> so We're, you actually sat down and watched it, unlike me and George. Was well, it exciting? Was it everything you hoped? It was a terrible game. And honestly, <laughs> as a sports fan and like a huge football fan, you guys know, I have to say this, and I'm sure some listener somewhere is going to be like, Toby's an idiot. He's an opera singer. I did play football. <laughs> like, it was really a thing that I studied and loved. Uh Jared Goff is bad at football. He's a quarterback for the Rams. He's not good. Mm. 
and I, I feel confident in saying that they will trade him within a year or two. That is my bold prediction. Wh- where right was where was Renee Fleming? That's what I where want to know. <laughs> where was Renee? Where was Renee? That's the question I always. Gladys, was eating buffalo Gladys wings Knight probably at her saying, own party. Oh man, I had buffalo dip. I paid for it. Oh, it burned dude. going in and okay. coming out. But Gladys Knight sang the <laughs> national anthem last <laughs> night. Two things. One, it was clearly recorded, which I'm totally fine with. Whitney Houston, who sang the best national anthem of all time, that was recorded. That was mm, not live. Yeah, yeah. It's a power, like packed pressure situation. True. But her recording and whatever, like she was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite national anthems ever. It was great. I liked her twists and her turns. It was beautifully artistically done. Well, very good. And we're gonna move on to something more explicitly about music now. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. A series of recent articles and interviews about the English National Opera are on the website Bachtrock. Uh, Bachtrock? Bachtrack? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, they've reignited a uh, classic debate on the merits and drawbacks of opera in translation prompting response published in the Guardian newspaper from none other than famed English comedian David Mitchell. Gentlemen, it's time to end this debate once and for all. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So, George, you, you want to you go ahead and start us off? Well, these articles were actually really a great little package, and they're on the website, operaboxscore.com. Yeah. It starts off with the Bachtrack interview with Barry Kosky, who's the intendant at the Komische Oper in Berlin. One of the things that he talks about in this opera is that he says, quote, you've got to bite the bullet and get rid of all the all singing in English thing. Mm. You can still be called English National Opera, but you need to get rid of that because it just smells slightly provincial in the world of subtitles and people hate, excuse me, and people being able to research what the thing means. People may disagree with me, but I just don't want to hear Italian opera in English, and I don't think most of the audience do either. That was Barry Kosky. Sure. Mark Wigglesworth, the music director at English National Opera, <laughs> replied that, to that. Doesn't that sound like an Austin Powers character? <laughs> a little bit. A little I'm bit. Here Wigglesworth. And basically, in his article, he says, no, look, that is our brand. But that also, is what he's we like do. A and tremendous we do conductor. It. I'm well, sorry, Mr. Wigglesworth. And then David Mitchell, he gets in here as well with a more kind of comedic response, and he starts talking about the riffraff in opera and, and so on <laughs> and so forth. The first thing I thought about Toby was. What are the opera companies that perform only in English in our country, similar to English National Opera? Well, similar. So I don't have a comprehensive list. And also, I really want to apologize to Wigglesworth because I know he's a tremendous (laughs) conductor and like, whatever, I'm never going to get hired again anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, You know, in the United States, we have Opera Theater St. Louis is like the primary um, example that fits what E&O does. Um, and I think actually for a while Pittsburgh Festival Opera is am I I believe you're right yes uh, did that so th- there is a track record and a precedent of this happening um, you know and it's interesting because if you read what they have on St Louis on their website um, their argument is that it makes it more accessible as well and that's essentially what Eno says and you know. I, my personal opinion on that is just because something's in English doesn't make it accessible. Agree. Um, sure. And it, it, that doesn't open up the door. It it doesn't make it any easier to understand what an opera is or to understand what dramatically is happening. And I'm sorry, like just because an opera is in English, uh, well, you know, we one of one of the things I said to you earlier, Weston, was that it's not a musical. Sure. Operas are not written as musicals. They're performed to be 
unamplified, sure. which is a totally different uh, production of sound than a musical. They are written to be performed over an orchestra and into most times a pretty substantial performance space. Um, and so you're not like, you can't take that and put it into um, a speak, a speech like pattern in English, right? So you can't, yeah, singing absolutely. La Boheme in English doesn't make it any easier than it does to understand it in Italian, in my opinion. Right. The well, phrasing I think is so long. I think it's all about sort of like the uh, the length, uh, the specificity of um, of those those units of expression. Right. I mean, going back all the way to like Monte Verdi, where you have like uh, certain chords, certain dissonances that happen on single. Uh, words, e even single syllables, and any sort of switching that up automatically kind of throws everything off. You're not getting you're not getting that the impact of the correct word on the correct uh, note on the correct syllable, um, and you can sort of get away with that to a certain extent in a lot of uh, music where the uh, units of expression are much larger, where you're doing like the same chord progression uh, over and over, where it, 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 there's not that specificity there of each syllable has to be this way to really work. Uh, that being said, of course, I do think that there's, um, well, Opera Theater of St. Louis is a, is a good example. They do a lot of operas in translation, yes. uh, but because they have such a background in performing in English, they also, I think, have an incentive to perform operas actually written in English well, that they a do, lot of people don't. They do don't. a ton of American premieres and a ton of right. world premieres at Opera Theater St. Louis. So that is also part of their body of work that's really important to note. They're not doing seasons that are just Rigoletto, Pearl Fishers. Like it's not Absolutely. Rosencapel. That's like not what they're doing. So that's important to note as well. And the same is true about English National Opera. Um, and so these companies that say English is how we do it to make it more accessible they're also on the forefront of, of programming in a different way. Um, for my money, though, if I'm going to go watch Madame Butterfly, I don't want it to be in English because, as you know, it was written in Italian right. with the Italian syllabic stresses being the driving force behind what melodic lines were produced. Yeah, especially if you go back to... Um, uh you were talking about Mozart before we even started the show. Right. Um, you listen to Don Giovanni or, or Cosi Fan Tutte, right. and you listen to the the recitativo that takes place there. If and it and the oppositores that from performance practice we know are supposed to happen. Right. It's for Italian, and it was for Italians to understand in Italian. Um, and when you start to put those things in English, it sounds frankly quite awkward. And there are very <laughs> few. And this is true with, uh, you know, certain operettas. You think of Flatermouse. Well, mm. there's a billion translations of Flatermouse, and all of them suck. <laughs> yeah. And there's a reason that they all suck, and it's because it wasn't written to be done in English. Well, it's a, right. it, is, it is a question of, of comprehension. Look, as a director, I'm concerned with two things. I'm concerned with, does the audience comprehend it and understand it? Yeah. And does the singer-actor comprehend and understand it that mm. is my job so how is the audience going to understand it are they going to understand it through super titles through the written word through reading the opera rather than seeing the opera or listening to the opera they basically going to read it in their own language with and now with the figaro titling system at the met and so forth you can pick one of half a dozen languages to look at the titles i think love that system so there's that in addition are my singer-actors going to be able to understand what they're saying? 
I want to be able to work on a piece in their native language so they can get every mm-hmm. nuance. My question for you, Toby, is when you do a piece in a foreign language, what are you thinking about when you're singing those words besides like a really big burrito? <laughs> <laughs> the eternal burrito that lurks in the back of Toby's mind at all Where times. Where am I getting my old fashioned after the show? Guac. <laughs> Chorizo. Chorizo. Well, so for me personally speaking, and I've mentioned this on the show, my my belief is that you have to know the text. You can't just memorize an Italian phrase and then sing it. You have to know the text. And knowing the text is knowing it both poetically and then word for word. So sometimes in your head, in a particularly hard phrase, you aren't thinking, um, like, what's a great example? God, I don't even know this. I'm failing everything. But, like, you're not thinking, I'm going to sing this beautiful phrase. I'm not going to sing, Che Geli Ramanina. And I'm not thinking what tiny hand cold you have yeah. you know that's not really what it works yeah. you've memorized the phrase and so for me what am i thinking i'm thinking i i already know the phrase and you've ingrained it and so if you're bilingual it's the same thing you you literally are thinking mm-hmm. in the other language um and when you when you know how phonetically other languages work and you take the time to really put the work in to understand what those translations are you do think in the other language if you're not doing that then you're not really performing either. Right. I mean, you'd be surprised, man, how many singers I work with who, you know, do not know what they're saying in a foreign language. Hmm. Right. And, they're, and so the biggest thing for me when it comes to... So that could be an argument potentially made in why we should do it in a singer's native language because we have, we have lazy <laughs> singers who don't want to do it, do the work necessary to function in the other language. But I, what I will say is that if you're singing another language... Um, and you don't know what it is, and you don't know it word for word, then you're not going to be able to phrase it in a way that makes any sense. You're not going to be able to emote it in a way that makes any sense. But back to your point, George, and I'm sorry, I'm going to get off my high horse here. (laughs) One of the things that I say to people who don't go to opera is that you don't have to read the the, the surtitles the entire time. And in fact, I encourage people not to because it's such a dramatic art form and it's such an inclusive art form. But what I tell people to do is take the time to read a synopsis. Do that, and you'll have a great understanding, a fundamental understanding, a foundational understanding of the story, and you can watch. And then you can feel what an opera is supposed to be. And then the text, while important for most people, you can experience an opera, and this is me getting on an accessibility diatribe, you can enjoy an opera without knowing every word that's being spoken if you have an Mm. understanding of the story. There's no question. And look... The bottom line is that if the diction is not fantastic, you will not get every word in English. Anyway. Yeah, how many, I don't know what percentage you'd get. Yeah, how many operas do we go to in English um, that, you know, they're being sung in the native language, but they got the super titles going and you need them sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, well, you do need them, you know. For orchestration purposes, for, I mean. Audiences have extremely high expectations when the work is being performed in their native language. Let's absolutely. say it's English. They assume they're going to get every word. It's a reasonable assumption, well, but par- that's not what happens. Part of the reason it doesn't happen, well, I think there are two main reasons. One, I think that there's sort of a, uh, and maybe this is an argument uh, against uh, uh, not doing translations. There, there. I think there has been over the past century or so, 
a, a sort of drop in uh, primacy of diction and primacy of people understanding it uh, in terms of on the performance side. But there's also on the audience side, um, as opera has, you know, sort of receded from sort of what people are used to hearing on the radio, the the, the quirks of opera, the vibrato, the, um, the, the, the way the syllables are held, those have become less easy for someone to grab onto who isn't already highly exposed to the art form. Um, so you have kind of a, a, a dual difficulty there. Um, and I, I don't want to like, I don't want, I, I don't think that translation is necessarily the way to solve those problems. I think that's something that the, um, that out, general outreach solves as well as um, perhaps better diction training for certain singers. Um, and certainly I don't think translations are the way to go because it's, well, my, 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 when I first read these articles, I just kept thinking about my recording of Lulu. Um, I believe it's the Boulez recording. Uh, it's uh, the libretto that came with it, obviously had the German text, good to go. My German's pretty bad, but um, it's there. Uh, and then uh, they had the text in English, so you could follow along. Great. However, for some strange, bizarre reason I can't comprehend, the English translation they put in the uh, libretto, in the CD, uh, case was a singable translation and just on a basic storytelling level it was incredibly difficult to tell what was going on because the translation was so bad Bec it meant that oh oh, oh it, not a literal translation exactly yeah, yeah, gotcha. it had been ripped right off the score um and just put in uh, uh put in there and it, it was incomprehensible if you were just reading it mm. uh without any sort of extra actions going on you know to that point though too and this is the articles kind of did touch on this. If you're going to translate something, it really has to be done by a native speaker of of the foreign language sure, and a really fluent speaker of the translated language. Yeah. And it should be done in the rehearsal space mm. because I mm. do believe that that it has to be done by the performer who is singing and knows the text already. So... What I'm saying essentially is any have you ever looked at a Shermer score translation sure. of anything? Yeah. They're awful. <laughs> they are not the opera. Yeah. They are not they are right. literally not what the show is about. Yeah. It's and like it's remarkable to me that so many people have that as a tool and that's not a great tool. <laughs> and it is to me it's detrimental to an art form. Absolutely. And so if if translations are going to be done, I really do think it has to be done by the team that's involved, and it has to then convey the message of the production. What a novel idea that you would have. <laughs> essentially, the singers write the super titles. I think that's a fantastic idea. Cause, I mean, you I've should seen, patent that, man. I've seen several productions <laughs> where, where there'll be something happening in translation, but, and what they're talking about is not happening on stage. Do you disagree? Like, I don't, I don't are disagree. Are you making fun of me? I I'm not making tell. fun of you. Because I'll come I over there and I'm kick not. your ass. <laughs> I'm not. Please don't come to this corner. This this mic smells really like pot, by the way, Toby. I just I don't know what pot smells like. So okay, fair enough. No, I'm not. I'm not teasing you. I think it's a great idea because again, it comes down to story. What's going to tell the clearest story? We need the actors to understand what they're singing. Yeah. We need the audience to understand what's going on. Well, you know, I, and I. I can't say that that idea is totally my own. It comes from doing libretto readings um, with native speakers. Yeah. And so literally sitting down and line by line reading through the libretto, not the score, but the libretto, the original libretti of... of uh, this happened for me with Italo Montemezzi's L'Amore de, de Tre Re. 
and it was a it was a wildly complicated actually mm-hmm. text. And I mentioned it when we talked about um, seeing, speaking in foreign languages a few weeks ago. But it was a really complicated text because it wasn't standard Italian, and so it was translated word by word, line by line. This entire and it took two days to do it. Yeah, it mm. wasn't a a s- small process. But by the end, everyone in the room who was part of the production really knew what the text was. Here's the bottom line: is that ENO should stick to its guns and do its thing. And I, I love mm. Barry Kosky's work. I'm going to disagree with him on this point. That singing in English has defined English national opera. That's one mm-hmm. of their sure. core principles. And they need to stick to that. And they need to continue to do that. And they do it very well. OTSL, they're not going to change. They need to stick to that as well. But it's about how are you going to... And this is such a dreadful word, brand, but how are you going to stick to your brand and how are you going to tell the stories well, in your house the way you want to do it? E- even more than just branding, they have a clear artistic vision for uh, an artistic reason for doing it in English. Uh, and that's why I can say why I agree with you, George. I think they should continue to do it, even though I personally heavily dislike operas in translation. Um, because uh, that's one of the things that so many opera companies seem to lack, and why I think a lot of them are struggling, uh, particularly in the uh, English-speaking world, is that they don't have that sort of um, artistic drive, uh, that specific artistic goal um, that the ENO does, um, at least in this field. (laughs) Maybe not in every single field. However, I would also say um, other opera companies don't do the translation thing. Just really advertise uh, to newcomers that you got big super titles and it's going to be fine. Um, (laughs) Just advertise your super titles. I can't, there have been so many people I've talked to who have never been to an opera before and they're just like, will I be able to understand what's going on? I'm like, there are always super titles. Don't worry. It is weird the number of people who don't know that. I know, it's bizarre. People people are freaked out at it. And to your point, Toby, it's like, do your homework. Read the synopsis and then let these people do their jobs, which is to (laughs) sing beautifully and play beautifully and design beautifully and direct beautifully and put yourself in their hands and all will be well. Mm. Well put, George. Coming up next, Opera Box Score's very own Oliver Camacho sits down with bass Adrian Sempetrian to talk about breaking into the business of singing, the perception of American singers abroad, and why you won't be hearing him sing Bach anytime soon. That's just around the corner on 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
That's right, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Andreon Sempetrion is a Romanian bass who has performed in opera houses all over the world. Oliver Camacho recently sat down with the singer hot off his recent run as Colina in La Boheme at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. He was very honest, and uh, I will always appreciate this because he said from the beginning, "Look, okay, let's go. Uh, we'll." try to sing a bit to see how this works for you, how you sound. And I guarantee that if I think that you have what you need to do this job, I will be the first one to encourage you and to tell you ah, it would be a, it was stupid not to do it. But if I feel that you don't have exactly what, it, what you require for this job, I will tell you, you know what, probably it's better to do something else. Because, and he's right, because this is, uh, this is a, Difficult yet rewarding, but I come back to the difficult part. Um, a difficult job and a difficult life anyway. So it takes a lot from you. So if... if Not just technically, vocally, but, no, also, but also lifestyle. Yeah. Lifestyle, also emotionally, also psychologically. So if you're struggling with it, it's going to be double or three or four times harder than it is anyway, you know? So I appreciate the way he he uh, saw things back then because he could have just been, oh, yeah, perfect, let's go, let's start work. And after he heard me for the first time, he said, you know what, kid, I think uh, you have some material, so we could start studying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and it started like that. So this is incredible because there, in America we have this thing like the stage mother or like you know, the stage parent, you know, where maybe the parent doesn't even have the, all the right information on how to get their kid uh, into the business or into any kind of performing arts business, you know, but they still push and push and they show up and they go to all the performances and lessons and they're aggressive with the instructors and whatnot, but they don't really know what it's like to be in the business. Here is somebody, your father, who is really doing it and he teaches at the... Um, the Cluj Napoca Music like Academy. Music Academy. The yes. Gheorghe Dima. Perfect. Okay, your pronunciation so, is, uh, by the way, it's fantastic. <laughs> no, really, it's thanks. <laughs> no, it's, it's surprising. It's wow. Um, so here's somebody who really understands the business, who is telling you that you have what it takes, and that's to me that's remarkable. And you grew up around music, and you knew what it, what you were getting yourself into. And like I know young people who were so successful, and like were really pushed by their parents to to do something like this and they get out of the conservatory system and they get into real life and they have their first failure and they can't handle it and they quit because they've never experienced failure before you know i think i think this is um 
this is something that not failure obstacle yeah exactly yeah. I, I think this is one of the one of the things that um nowadays with all the talent shows and um uh, children starting yeah start singing so early and um no I, hard work it's instant success <laughs> it, it, but it's normal because it's it's natural i mean yeah. uh it's it's just you know uh, talented people that uh are really talented most of them you know and and they just sh they they show this but then uh, by the time they they get into the real life of professional singing the job the business uh, the yeah. job the business they start to be surrounded by other people who do the same thing at least as good as they do. So they're not a phenomenon anymore like they were when they were 10 or yeah. 12 or 14 yeah. when everybody says like, oh my God, I've never seen something like that, which exactly. was true. Yeah. But I don't think it's a good thing to inoculate this to, to, to a, let's say, developing personality. I mean, it's, it's good to know that it, it doesn't matter... Uh, so, or life and professional singing is not about being the best or being it's just that doing things uh, the best you can I think I think this is the best way to put it and the best way to see it. it of course there is competition and everybody says oh yeah well this is this is such a difficult world to live in because there's so much competition it's true that there is competition of course but in the end I think that the the most important competition that you have is with yourself in order to develop further, in order to be better than you were yesterday. So, you know, for, for me, uh, I must admit that it's also because of my family. And probably even if I even if I would have told them that I wanted to start singing earlier, they wouldn't have allowed it. Because they both think that to be fully aware of what you are doing, then you should start especially as a uh, as a male voice you should start when the voice has changed and already settled so with 18 i think it was a good age to start it and for me it was for me it was like a like a present from god like a gift you know i was it was just it was something that i received without even thinking about it i was probably old enough to manage the whole thing and well, by, by the time I got into the music academy, I was just thankful that I could be there with all my colleagues that have already won contests and were singing uh, already for, I don't know, three or four years. Mm -hmm. And so for me, everything was like a revelation. It, it, it was nothing about, you know, trying to uh, surpass someone or trying to... Uh, achieve this grade or get this role uh, in the production of the year and it was i must admit that in our group which was actually a, a very good one we didn't have this we were all colleagues and we were all happy to work with each other and there was no let's say competition put in a bad way and uh, probably you, you, you were supportive of each other you were supportive exactly yeah. And uh, that's why most most of us are doing wonderful careers now, uh, some in Romania, some in Germany, some worldwide. Like, for example, you might have heard about Anita Hartig. Yeah. So we were studying together. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Actu actually, our final exam was La Boheme, where she was singing oh. me and I was singing <laughs> Colina. So we were a team. Uh, and I think it's, it's so important, not only in the university or while you're studying, but I think that it's 
so important while on stage. Because, you know, being a team, starting from the conductor to the director to the singers to the technical department, lights, it's what makes a show to be compact. You know, I, I love it when, when you get this feeling that everybody is doing his best, of course, but is also doing his best in order to support the others. Yeah. Well, so now that you've had some experience working in the U.S., what is it like to work with American colleagues? This is the question I'm always curious about. Like, you know, you are used to, you know, the German system and you trained in Romania and now you're starting to get these engagements, you know, uh, in North America. What do you see as the difference with how uh, Americans are trained or how they are, how they come to rehearsal, their preparation, how they work with their colleagues and the conductor? My experience is very positive, to okay. be honest. I mean, uh, and I'm not talking only about the colleagues that I've met while working here, but I'm also talking about the American singers that come to, to Europe. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the first was Larry Brownlee, mm -hmm. uh, Lisette Oropesa. I think it was in 2011 when yeah. we sang uh, Lucia, Lucia together in oh Dusseldorf. My God. You know, she's insane. In that Ex role. <laughs> exactly. So I already had contact with uh, American singers while in in, in Europe, mm -hmm. and further when I came here. And I must say that um, they are really very professional, very well prepared, and it is is always a pleasure to be on stage with them because uh, they're great colleagues. Mm -hmm. All of them. I, I mean, I, I can't think of one Ameri American singer that I know mm -hmm. uh, who, let's say, is probably a bit more reserved or uh, a bit more focused on himself. Mm -hmm. I think this team feeling that I was talking about is really present in American singers. Okay. Of course, it doesn't mean that it's not present in singers from all around the world. Right. Uh, well, I'm not trying to get you to disparage anybody. But oh no, no, no. I'm trying to figure. I'm out not going like, to do it. I'm not going to do it anyway. Because what, what makes American singers different than other nationalities? That at least in your experience. I think the, so I think the ambition. Yeah. I think I think American singers are uh, very ambitious, and they. Um, they are, as I said, very well prepared, and this this helps a lot. Okay. And they are very conscious when they work on something. Why am I saying this? It's because, of course, they have to study in some aspects harder than, for example, let's put it this way, harder than we Romanians have to. I mean, at least we have the advantage of the language mm -hmm. because Romanian is a Latin language so it's very similar to English so uh, and I'm saying this about me I'm not implying this for any other Romanian colleague mm -hmm. but I can sometimes be sloppy uh, with with some specific Italian things like I, I might sometimes not get the perfect doubles for example you yeah. know just because the language double comes consonants. the double yeah. Uh, the, yeah the double consonants okay. yeah yeah like for example i i tend to not to neglect but sometimes it just fade away because the language is so similar to romanian that it yeah. just feels yeah. natural and you and know you're then, singing legato and you want to make the exactly and, and then the italian coach comes yeah. and tells you well you know the doubles what i i, I missed the double consonants <laughs> you know so so see that's why i'm telling that uh that American singers are much more aware of what they're doing because they they really have to work all these aspects, yeah, let's say probably more than 
Latin language yeah. speakers. Okay. You know? Now we know that you are, you know, you're coming from a musical family and you probably heard singing all the time, but are there singers that you listen to um, for inspiration or who you really just admire what they do, you know? Yes, definitely. Uh, the For me, the best voice, um, I think it's probably too radical to say the best voice, but... Mm-hmm. In my opinion, the one that makes me feel the best when I hear singing is uh, Luciano Pavarotti. I, I I would call him the voice, but it wouldn't be right and it would be fair yeah. because uh, we had so many wonderful singers and uh, with special colors and special voices and special techniques and that is just not fair to call someone the best. That's what I was reluctant about the, the way I started my phrase. But he is the one that when I hear singing, it feels like the sun is shining and um, that I I find so incredibly and unbelievably hard to understand how he can sing so naturally. It, it really sounds like he's like he's not doing anything. And of course, this is the this is the goal for every singer to make it sound that way. And only we know what happens inside. But still, even knowing all these things and listening to his voice is, how does he do that? Yeah, no, he's one of those singers that the audience, they even though they don't know about singing, they understand that there's something very special exactly. about this voice. It exactly. communicates, it's very authentic. And then those of us who have studied the singing, like, what in the world? <laughs> like, exactly. Technically, what exactly. is he doing, you know? Yeah. And as a bass, it would be Nikolai Gyorov that I really Oh, like. I'm so glad you said I love him. Yes, <laughs> yes. Which has a connection to Pavarotti through Freni. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they, I think they were like a golden team then. Yeah. Um, so this is another question out of left field, but I noticed that you're on this recording of a Rameau opera, Les Paladins, yes. with uh, Conrad <laughs> Jung, Jung, Jung Hennel. Yes. That seems a little bit out of your comfort zone, and I would love to know like what you learned doing that recording and if you have any more early music on the horizon. Uh, n- no, actually, I don't have any more on the horizon, and that was a um, that was a challenge that I uh, gladly accepted uh, because um, uh, I think Ramon was um, writing very vocally. Uh, it was it was just the phrasing and the the way the line was written was really appealing. And his music is very appealing. It has something sensual. It has something, especially a paladin. It's very joyful. It's very playful at the same time. It's sensual. It's just, it's, it's nice. So, of course, I was in the ensemble in Dusseldorf. So mm-hmm. I got assigned to do this role on Selm in Le Paladin. After yeah. which they, after that, they did a, the recording. A, yeah. a recording, yes. But it was a very nice experience, and uh, I, I really, uh, I, I did it open-hearted. Uh, then, when I went to Hamburg, I got offered uh, or I got casted in a different uh, early music piece, which was Flavius Bertaridus, uh, written by Telemann. Okay. Which I had to refuse because uh, it was a different kind of Baroque. It was the German instrumental Baroque. And Lots of- Tel- Telemann is really instrumental. And it just I just felt that it doesn't suit me. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, you don't sing Bach. No, I don't. Yeah. I don't. It makes total sense to me. And, like, those of us who have a hard time with Bach but can sing 
like Rossini or whatever. It's like, well, you can move your voice. What's the problem? It's like it's just different. <laughs> it, it is. It is different. I I admire I admire Bach and the whole the whole writing and the whole complexity of his music and everything. Yeah. That's why I think I think that for Bach, for example, you really need a special preparation. You have to take yourself out of the music. Exactly, yeah. and and you have you have to work for that. Mm-hmm. And this is what I've been telling people because in Germany sometimes it's hard to understand because they have this baroque culture you know mm-hmm. and this is what I was trying to explain people in Germany that oh you don't sing baroque and I was like no I don't sing baroque because we don't have a baroque culture in Romania we have more more bel canto uh, legato culture I mean if you think about the famous Romanian singers they were all Italian repertoire singers mm-hmm. Uh, Virginia Zani, Angela Gheorghiu, Ludovic Spies, uh, uh, Vasile Moldoveanu that sang many years in, at the Met. So it's because also of our language and it's because of our style. So we don't have a Baroque school, which means that if I don't have a Baroque training, I won't dare to touch Bach. Yeah. You know, uh, I think you really have to know what you're doing when you go into Bach. Uh, and yet singers like you are comfortable in Mozart because it's not so instrumental. Even though we talk about Mozart all the time as being like the super, you know, elegant Rococo thing. It's true. You can still sing it. And you, you yes. see a lot of singers that don't like Anna Trepko or, you know, who sing Mozart. It's like, yeah, it sounds that sounds great. You know? Yes, so, yes. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think nowadays... Uh, also, the audiences sometimes want to hear let's say, singers that are singing heavier repertoire or yeah. Verdi, they want to hear those voices in Mozart. Mm-hmm. And I, I, th- I think that, of course, Mozart requires a certain discipline. I don't agree with the people that think that Mozart requires a different technique. The technique should be just only one. It's the approach and uh, the... And singing in tune and singing in rhythm. Ex- <laughs> that's it. Exa- exactly. Yeah. That, that, that's it. Yeah. You just have to be... Really careful with what you do in Mozart. Of course, you're not allowed to do uh, anything that's not within the score, which yeah. sometimes in Verismo or it's yeah. let's say ex- acceptable. Like yeah. Change depends who's conducting. Yeah, yeah. but uh, well, I, I I'm okay with portamento and Mozart, but it has to be a very clean portamento. You know, sure, very rhythmic and, and like sure. So I, I think that it's just that Mozart requires a different a different discipline, but not a different technique. Not yeah. at all. So on the horizon, you have Leporello in Orange and uh, Alidoro in Rome and back at the Deutsche Oper. Yes. Um, I don't know how far your schedule goes in advance, but I'm sorry that we're doing this interview just as La Boheme is finishing, so I can't tell the audience, go see La Boheme. <laughs> they probably already saw it, but uh, I look forward to you coming back to Chicago. I mean, I'm, you have a fan here, and I hope that the audience seeks you out because this is, this is very exciting. You're only 36, so there's lots more to come. Thank you. Thank you very much for everything. It was a pleasure being here today. Uh, I thank you for your kind words. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I will always come back uh, with an open heart to Chicago because it was not only my first engagement in, uh, in the United States, but it was also, I think, a very nice way to get in contact with the way art is seen and loved and appreciated and supported here in the United States. And uh, yeah, for that, I I can only be um, I can only be grateful. So thanks well, for everything. You're welcome. Safe travels back to Europe. Thank you. All the best. Thanks, Oliver. 
That clip from the beginning of the interview is from a pirate recording of Sir Giorgio's aria in Act 2 of last season's Chicago Lyric Opera production of Lucia del Lammermoor. Barbara Hannigan wins big, David Daniels goes to jail, and gamers tear apart an opera house in Kyrgyzstan. It's been a big week in opera land, folks. That's all up next on Opera Box Score, 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, Intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Olinsky, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Famed countertenor David Daniels and his husband, William Scott Walters, were arrested last week on charges of sexual assault and a continuation of the ongoing saga surrounding multiple accusations of sexual misconduct against the couple. Daniels and Walters waived their right to extradition hearings to be tried in the state of Texas for the alleged rape of Samuel Schultz in 2010. Canadian singer and conductor Barbara Hannigan has been awarded Denmark's Leonie Sonic Music Prize for 2020, the country's highest musical honor. In addition to the obvious prestige of the prize, Hannigan will be walking away from the podium 100,000 euros richer. Bolat Osmanov, the director of Kyrgyzstan Opera Ballet F- Theatre, has been fired after he came up with the idea to host a video game tournament at the Opera House. The move is apparently a way to make ends meet at the theater, which has been struggling financially, but many of the house's fans saw the hosting of a violent video game tournament as a betrayal of a great cultural institution. Score one for opera and popular media. Mezzo-soprano Isabel Leonard is profiled in the February edition of Vogue magazine, where she talks about how she dropped everything for the chance to be on Sesame Street and describes her budding friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. On Wednesday, January 30th, one of the most beloved American divas of the 80s and 90s mounted a comeback recital at Carnegie Hall. Uh, Zachary Wolf, the uh, uh, reviewer for New York Times, reported that April Milo Milo, uh, announced that she was cutting the uh, scheduled first act aria from Ariadne Levacure because, quote, Anna Nertrebko sang it so beautifully, I'm going to leave it to her. And the crowd ate it up. Not to be outdone by the Oscars, nominations for the 2019 International Opera Awards have been announced. Uh, Find a link to all those nominees on our website. Exit stage left. Baritone Sanford Sylvan, known for his introspective yet committed takes on new and old works, has died at age 65. Sylvan premiered a number of new works during his career, with composer John Adams calling the baritone his muse in an interview with the New York Times. American mezzo-soprano Elaine Bonazzi has also passed away. She was known for new works herself, particularly in connection with New York City operas, creating roles in collaboration with such luminaries as Ned Roram, Carlisle Floyd, and Giancarlo Menotti. 
And on this day, February 4th, it is the anniversary of the birth of conductor Erich Leinsdorf, who recorded a series of complete opera recordings for RCA Victor, including uh, Birgit Nielsen as Turandot and Leontine Price as Madame Butterfly. And on this day, 1935, bass Marti uh, Tavela was born, who went on to become one of the most famous Finnish opera singers in the world. Premiere of Otello by Giuseppe Verdi also happened on this day in 1887, as well as the premiere of Der Monde by Karl Orff in 1939. And that is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Lots of stuff going on in the opera world this week. Um, I was not expecting the <laughs> the Kyrgyzstan story yeah, of the gamers. That was, that was bizarre. I want to. I'll get to that in one second. I just sure. want to wrap up super quick on oh, absolutely. Uh, Oliver's interview with Andrean, which was totally awesome. What a great guy! I, I I love the bass voice. You know, being a tenor myself and not being able to. Literally, not George, you're a boy soprano. Boy soprano. <laughs> Thank you. This was interesting. Is that uh, his vocal teacher was his father? Yep. Mm. Yep. Second factoid: he took fencing lessons as part of his training right. at the Romanian Conservatory. And then we're going to slap Weston on the wrist here. The, uh, obviously, Sir the Giorgio's whist? aria is is from Puritani. Oh, I'm sorry, I messed that up, didn't I? Well. Not what are you going to do? From, uh, the this is what that. happens when you're not on the, in front of the board, George. Just things I, get messed up just a little bit. The David Daniels thing, and I'm, I'm not going to put this picture on the website because it makes me sad. Is, is well, the, it may, the, the mug shots of It him. brings no brevity to our, to our this is conversation. True. But go on, sorry. Well, I just, I've not met David Daniels, all right? He teaches at the University of Michigan, my, my hometown institution. I've seen him perform a number of times. He's a fabulous singer. And when, so I don't know the guy, but I feel like I, I know him. And when you see these sorts of accusations, these crimes, which almost 100% clearly happened, I'm, I'm not going to get myself into conjecture, hearsay, gossip here. It's crushing. Yeah. It's crushing. It's disappointing. It's disgusting. And it's upsetting. I agree with you. Uh, yeah. And to now, you know, in in the, I don't like talking about the Me Too movement uh, for a few reasons, um, especially in this particular instance. I think we've talked about it. Uh, I I disagree with what I'm saying. I think we've talked about it a lot. Okay. I don't think we need to talk about it all the time. I think people, what we have helped say is that you have a voice. You will be supported. Um, and what we have called for widely on the show is that is the implement like it, we have to implement a series. Um, there have to be rules. There have to be ways that we can handle right. it, and that's what opera companies and that's what universities need to do. What is damning about this particular instance is that this is an arrest. Yeah. And, right. And all the things that we, and all of the accusations that we've talked about, and all of the articles that have come out, and the Facebook posts. Um, from so many people who have stepped forward and, and shared that they were victims of this type of behavior, this is the first one and the probably the most prominent example outside of what's taken place at the Met, right. in which there's multi-million dollar lawsuits, but no arrests. True, but there was an arrest made, yeah, man. Um, not only yeah. of him but his husband. Yeah, um, and to then be arrested and held without bail. I'll let you know. I have a few friends who are. Lawyers. Okay. And I talked to 
a few of them just to kind of uh, gauge what the language was um, in this particular instance. And um, they, so in the article it says that they have waived their rights to contest extradition. And what I was told is that that means they've given up any right to argue that they shouldn't be taken to Texas and tried there. Yeah. So they have said, we... We accept that you are going to hold us, one, one, arrest us, two, hold us without, without bail, bail, which is insane. That's nuts. You can be charged with, like, second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter, and you're not held you without pony bail. pony up, you'll, you'll right. get out, yeah. Um, I mean, Robert Stone. Case Rod, Roger Stone last week. Yeah. I said Robert. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Oliver so, Stone. Who? <laughs> what? <laughs> Oliver Camacho is was Oliver? arrested. Wait. Oliver Camacho. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> guys. That's guys, why he's not here. I've had a long day. Anyway, <laughs> whole point. All I'm saying is like, yeah, this is ugly, yeah. and it's ugly on a lot of different levels. And now it's and I mean, the fact that someone is in jail for these accusations lets it. It really drives home the severity of right. the Me Too movement and the brave, uh, the bravery that it takes to step forward and say this is what is happening. So, yeah, it's kind of remarkable that uh, despite you know, all these stories, you know, there there are so few arrests, so few. Yeah, uh, it's 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 really I mean, obviously, we're going to be covering the story as it goes the thing along. is about the Me Too movement that we haven't seen enough of, in my opinion, is justice being served. Right. And so I don't want to belabor this point anymore with the David Daniels thing, yeah. personally speaking, because I know I rant and I get really upset. But justice is being served. Yep. Um Totally. Innocent until proven guilty through the 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 justice process here in the United States. So we'll see what does come of this. But to be arrested, charged, um, extradited, and held without bail, I think speaks volumes to there has to be some some sort of credible evidence um, toward here. And so justice is being served in one of these particular cases, and that's what I think we can hope for um, out of the Me Too movement. Agree, absolutely. So let's move on to something a little lighter. lighter. Uh, I just get worked. I started to stress sweat when I was talking about that. I saw that. It was very gross. Man, I was stress sweating about that. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about those video games and those those crazy kids and their video games, man. (laughs) Oh dear, poor Bolot. Poor Bolot Osmanov. Oh man, it 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 cracks me up just because you know uh, uh, the Kyrgyzstan Opera Ballet Theater. Which is a beautiful little theater, right? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. real nice. Did you guys see the picture there? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was nice. Until the, the Until gamers, gamers went it. in there and like spilled their Dr. <laughs> Peppers everywhere. Uh, no, it's Mountain Dew for gamers. <laughs> Get it right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously, there. Uh, basically, it was, it was like, oh, we're going to get in some money. We're going to maybe... Oh, it's like, gonna be, we're going to be down with so the there's, kids. There's two points to this that right. I think are interesting. The traditionalists there, this is a state-run opera house. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it's subsidized by the state. And yet, they're struggling financially. This doesn't surprise anyone, really. Right. Sure. So it's kind of hard, like... The Lyric Opera has Smashing Pumpkins. You can rent the Lyric of the Civic Opera House true, true. for your wedding. True. You could have a and Fortnite convention there. It exactly. is kind of bizarre. And exactly. Fortnite could <laughs> pony up the cash, I, baby. I, I do the Get in our gilded art deck. Like, let's go. Well, the video game tournament, too, uh, they, apparently they were only renting it, the building for $300 an hour, which doesn't strike me as much. 
for I would have said that was like a that. deal, probably. Uh, yeah, I th- I, that sounds pretty cheap. Maybe that was the real objection. It was like you should have asked for more money from uh, the, the yeah <laughs> all the all the sponsors there. Um, I do kind of feel bad for the guy getting fired, uh, and because it is a state-run opera, opera company, it didn't become official uh, until uh, the like literal like I think it was the 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 prime minister, or whatever the equivalent, had to sign off on it, which has got to feel bad. Bizarre. Um, yeah, I hope he gets another gig. Uh, hopefully, at some place that doesn't have to resort to uh, hiring out their opera. Well, right, you know that that was honestly probably done in good faith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Next time, just try like Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go. It's it's way the kids love it. The kids love it. Isabella Leonard in Vogue. Yeah, that's a that's 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 the real stuff right there. That's how you well that's how you promote your opera related things. Don't don't put on a a video game convention. Get in vogue. Get in. You know what I thought was interesting, and I don't mean to poo poo on Isabella Leonard, but she was talking about how she had like a she was talking about her childhood. Right, <laughs> like I'm like God, you, yeah, you were destined to be an opera singer. <laughs> she was like, well, I was raised in Chelsea, which wasn't really Chelsea now. Like, and everyone who was raised in Chelsea, of course, says Chelsea was different before Chelsea was Chelsea. Why, why are you mocking her, dog? I'm not. I'm just saying, like, her parents. She has were, been on no, Sesame Street. You bite your tongue. She sir. was like a ballet dancer. Her parents were both artists. They were art distributors. Like, it yeah. made so much sense. And she yeah. was raised in New York City. Like, it makes yeah. so much sense that she's an internet. I wasn't poo pooing on her. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> it makes sense that she became okay. Okay. an opera singer. I s- okay, I get you. I get you. I, it, on the it, rough it, streets it fe- of Chelsea. It, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I do love the fact. I mean, uh, Isabel Leonard is kind of having a, a great sort of year. She's been in all sorts of things recently, in Marnie and all these other things. And I, I'm really glad that some of that is spilling over into the uh, ma- relatively mainstream world of Vogue magazine. I assume it's mainstream. I'm too hipster to read it myself, but I, <laughs> but I assume this is a, a good step. And you I, can't I, read. <laughs> I don't know how to read. That's why I said that uh, Giorgio Zaria was from Lucia de Lammermoor earlier. Yeah. Uh, on that note. Let's wrap this up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. I have a good call uh, from Oliver Camacho, um, who just saw Electra. He says, Elza van der Hever is the complete package as Chrysotemnis in Lyric Opera of Chicago's Electra. Oliver says that van der Hever manages to sing beautifully, sing in tune, and that she cuts through the orchestra like a hot knife through butter, and that she leaves everything on the stage. He calls it a must-see. Anyone else got anything as good as that? I have a bad call for saying bad things about... I, I got a bad call. Oliver's metaphors... Hot knife through butter. Oh, sorry, it's a simile because he uses like he's got to work on those. This is why he's not here. He, totally. he doesn't like I, us very much. I feel much. bad for making fun of Isabel Leonard. <laughs> that is a bad call. I can agree with you on that. I'm fired. <laughs> Next week, Toby will be better. We'll make him behave. We promise. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabass.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For George Cedarquist and Tobias Wright, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera if you managed to survive last week's polar vortex. 
We're back on Monday, February 11th at 9 p.m. Central when we're joined live in studio by soprano Christine Piche to talk about her one-woman show, Witches, Bitches, and Divas. Plus, get all your opera headlines and our hot takes. Join us then. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. Again, you never-